wow, I haven't seen this many people on a midweek Bible class in eight months. I know, y'all think that if you show up at Bible class tonight, it will somehow persuade God to give the right victory in the presidential election. (laughs) Whatever it takes. (laughs) Yeah. All right, well, don't be watching the news. Nobody's going to know who wins this for hours, and I am not going to teach Bible class for hours, so don't worry about it here. It's going to be a good time to just practice a little faith rest drill. You know, trust the Lord and relax. All right, the only announcements that I'm aware of is that we will be having uh, men's prayer breakfast this month. We're really going to do it this month. On the 21st, uh, Saturday morning, come out, 7.30, we have a great breakfast uh, we'll all have to figure out how we do it again, but we'll do it. And then, of course, we will not have Bible class on Thanksgiving evening on that Thursday night. There will not be any Bible class. And then pre-trib, I believe, is the dates are December 7th through the 8th. Is that right? 7th through the 9th. That's right. 7th through the 9th. And there will not be any Bible class for those of you who live stream. There will not be any Bible class on the night of, of that Tuesday the 8th because everybody will be, our, our team and backup pastors and everybody will be a pre-trib. So um, that's, where, that's where we'll be. So we have never had Bible class on that, on that Tuesday night. So I think that is it. So you need to pay attention to these verses tonight. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which passes all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee and not on Fox News or the election returns, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. That was a textual variant in a very ancient manuscript, okay? All right, we need to be uh, spiritually prepared tonight. How is tonight different from any other night? That's the first question in the Seder series of questions the kids ask. Well, it remains to be seen how this night will unfold. But we need to make sure that we are spiritually focused in right relationship with the Lord no matter what comes. The number of solid believers in this country shrinks daily. Uh, I recently... As you know, I've talked many times on on topics related to why evangelicals support Israel and evangelical this and evangelical that. And probably the best number, the best percentage on the number of evangelicals in this country is the definition about eight points, eight or nine points that the Barna Group has put together. Uh, Most of these polls that define how many evangelicals there are, you're an evangelical if if you answer the first question correctly, the first question being, are you an evangelical? If you say, yes, you are one. And that means there's about 100 million of us. But if you look at the Barna results, and these are about 11 or 12 years old, so I think it shrunk a lot since then, was, was only about 12 or 14 million because he has specifics in there related to what you believe about the Bible, what you believe about the 
humanity and deity of Christ and what you believe about the virgin birth and what you believe about miracles and what you believe about substitutionary atonement and what you believe about the resurrection and what you believe about the return of Christ. And that's all, all of which is important, but the more points you have to believe, the more narrow the number of people, the smaller the group gets. And if you don't believe in those eight or nine things that Barna has, I'm not really sure you're much of a Christian at all. You may be saved and going to heaven, but that doesn't mean you have much of an understanding of the Bible or that your thinking has been transformed by the Bible at all. And we all know that that it is due to the influence of Bible-believing Christians that we have this nation, that we have the freedoms recognized by our government that are our inherent and unalienable rights that are ours because they are have been given to us. We are endowed by our Creator. It's amazing the doctrine of creation and the providence of God that is in the Declaration of Independence. We went through that a few months back. But that's it. And we have a world today where it is so sad, where people have never read the Declaration of Independence. They don't understand what it means and what it says. And and they they despise the idea that Christians have any influence in this government. I ran across a quote from some celebrity this last week, and and it was it was a you know I thought well they get it, and it was a, a comment about not only do we need to get rid of Trump, we need to get rid of Pence, because he's what's waiting in the wings, and he's a Christian. And we can't have a Christian like that that's in the government. For those of you who don't know, when Mike Pence was a congressman from Indiana, when he was living in Washington, D.C. and attended church, he went to a church named Emmanuel Bible Church. And a friend of mine named Mike Easley, a graduate of Dallas Seminary back when it was a good school, uh, was the pastor there. It was a large church, but Mike was Mike's theology is very solid and dispensational and pre-mill and pre-trib. And so uh, from what I understand, so is the theology of Mike Pence. So we can be very thankful we have a believer of that stability that is just a heartbeat away from the presidency. So before we begin, we need to make sure we are in right relationship with the Lord so that we can have... Um, have the Word of God in our soul, God the Holy Spirit working in our lives as we live on the basis of Him, walking by means of the Spirit. So let's bow our heads together, and after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Our Father, as we pray this evening, we want to make sure that our attention is focused upon you as the sovereign, righteous, creator God of the universe, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, and that you are a God of absolute truth, and that when we come to your word, we know that because it is your word, your message, you are the one who breathed it out that it is absolute truth, which is why our Lord Jesus prayed in John 17, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. And Father, we're thankful that you providentially supervise the raising up and the taking down of nations. And we know that no nation has ever, has ever really passed the prosperity test Few of us as individuals ever pass the prosperity test. But Father, we pray that this nation, where there's still a strong foundation of believers in Christ who uh, support missions and missionaries and the teaching of the Bible, the support of Israel, we, we pray that that might continue. And we know that there are political forces that are in the Democrat Party 
that hate Christianity, hate the Bible, hate biblical truth, hate our Judeo-Christian heritage. And Father, we pray that you would protect us from them. We pray that you would expose the evil of those who wish to destroy this nation, their hostility to God, their hostility to freedom. We pray that their schemes to defraud and to uh, tyrannize would be exposed and that law and order would prevail and that we would have a society and a culture where we can live in peace and that we can go about uh, our responsibilities as believers without fear of hostile opposition and government interference. Father, we pray for us tonight that we might focus on your word, not be distracted by the fact that the election returns may be coming in. We know that you will be in charge of what happens and that we ask that we have the humility to accept what happens, win or lose, and to respond to it in humility, knowing ultimately that you are the one who gives the victory and you're the one who sustains us even in the midst of such chaos as we've experienced this year. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to uh, Psalm 30 as we are uh, continuing in our study. And I'm going to start with a little review, but what we're going to focus on tonight is prosperity testing in Psalm 30 verses 5 through 7. And I want to review us because we stopped and we spent some time on a, another topic brought up by verse, um, by verse 4, where David says, Sing praise to the Lord, you saints of His. As we looked at that, we talked about what is needed to be able to sing praise, that there needs to be the words, and there needs to be music. Who writes the words? What's the standard for determining what qualifies as words that are worthy to be sung in the assembly to glorify God? And then second, we looked at the music. What qualifies as music? And we talked about the fact that the Bible does indeed present a theology of beauty, and that beauty ultimately is objective and not subjective and the standards of beauty reside in the greatest art artist ever known, and that is God, who displayed his artistic craftsmanship when he created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. And so that becomes a standard for looking at singing. We've seen that singing is not optional. This is a command here, and we have the same kinds of things in the New Testament and we have, and I've, I've gone to these passages before, but I learned something while I was gone in Tucson I wanted to bring out. And we've gone to Ephesians five nineteen and following, talking about the fact that the first results of, of being filled by means of the Spirit is singing hymns and spiritual songs and praise to God and giving thanks in our hearts, and it's echoed in Colossians 3.16. The wording is a little bit different. There the command is not to be filled by means of the Spirit, but to let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, resulting in teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. When I was in seminary, one of the most well-known seminary professors was Charles Ryrie. And first day, my third class, I think, it was a large class, I think our entire uh, freshman first-year class was in that auditorium. And I got as close to the front as I could, and this wisp of a man came walking in. He always looked like a strong two-mile-an-hour wind would blow him over. And he stood up in front of class, and he talked. He talked quietly, and you just didn't want to miss a word that he said. And I had him for several courses, and after seminary, I also got to know him uh, personally. And on occasions, we would go out to dinner one of the things I always appreciated about him, he, he had the ability to 
make the complex simple and to reduce certain things to an incisive statement. I didn't always agree with his theology, although he was free grace, very grace-oriented. He is the dean of dispensationalists and has written an outstanding book on dispensationalism. But when I was in Tucson, uh, or just before I left, Logos 9 came out. And so um, John Hintz and I were sitting in his um, family room area and a big screen TV and projecting this video from Morris Proctor up on the screen going over the new features in Lagos 9 so that we could come to understand them. And so there were a number of them, and the next day we did the same thing, but this time we were watching through some video lessons that Morris had done, and I can't even remember what thing it was that he was doing, but he had us punch in Colossians 3.16. And what it did underneath it, it opened a panel, and it listed paragraphs from key works that were in your your resource library in Lagos. And about the third one down was a, a statement that Ryrie made in his Ryrie Study Bible. And there are times when you read somebody says something, and it's a short sentence, and you look at it and you go, that is just absolutely so obvious and brilliant. But he makes this comment about Colossians 3.16. He says, The psalms and hymns and spiritual songs must be those that teach and admonish. Now think about that. That is a biblical criteria for evaluating the words of choruses or hymns or anything else that we sing, that the words are supposed to teach and admonish. And if the words don't teach and admonish, then why are we singing it? That's the biblical value. And I thought, man, that is great. So I just had to add that to what we have been studying because that was such a great, great insight. Okay, Psalm 30. Now, what we have seen in the past is in First Samuel, or excuse me, Second Samuel chapter 24, when David numbered the people, it is depicted there, especially in comparison with its parallel in First Chronicles, that's where it says that Satan moved David's heart. So we understand there is a temptation to sin there, and God in his permissive will allowed David to be tested just as God allowed Job to be tested by Satan, and David failed the test and gave in to this temptation. And it's not as clear in the text, although if you take time to study it, it's, it's there. But it's not one of those things that just leaps out at you. So like many passages in Scripture, you have to take some time to really reflect on it and study some things so that it becomes apparent what's really going on there. It's obvious that what has happened is that this is near the end of David's life, and David and his army have defeated all of the enemies surrounding Israel. God has given them peace. He's expanded, solidified, and stabilized David's kingdom. And David is not just conducting a simple census. He's not just saying, okay, how many people are in in the kingdom? He's focusing, it seems, on the military strength of his army. Now, he's got no military campaign coming up, but he wants to know how powerful he is and what he can do. And so there's an element of arrogance there. Psalm 30, as we saw in the uh, superscript, is a song at the dedication of the temple. The house of David, as it is stated and translated in Psalm 30, uh, is, is a bad translation. The of David is the standard way in which David or the, any author of, the, uh, of any psalm is designated. It's a, a Hebrew preposition plus the name of of the author of the of the hymn so it's not a uh, the house of david it is a song at the dedication of the house and the house of the uh, the temple was typically described in the psalms as the house of the lord that i may dwell in the house of the lord forever at the end of psalm 23 
And this, this is the same word. So this was written at, by David as he prepared everything else for the building of the temple. He prepared this hymn to be sung at the dedication of the temple. He knew he would be dead by then and that Solomon was going to build it after he died. But he wrote this in preparation for that. And in this, we see it is a praise psalm that is reflecting upon how God intervened in a crisis situation that threatens Dave, that threatened David's very life and God kept him from death. And there's a lot of similarities here with the situation in uh, in Second uh, Samuel chapter 24. And so as we studied, uh, he says, I will lift you up in praise. And it's an interesting play on words here because the next line, you have drawn me up, and that has the same idea. In some translations, it'll translate like that as lifted up as the New King James does. It translates the first part, I will extol you for you have lifted me up. And the idea is you have drawn me up like a bucket from a well. Uh, indicating that he's down in a pit. This is just one of several images. We'll see a couple more as we get towards the second half of this psalm. That these these saw these um, this pictures Sheol. Sheol is sometimes called, or it's translated the grave, or it's uh, uh, it's translated the pit. Sometimes the Hebrew word means literally a pit. But that's the idea. You've drawn me up uh, from Sheol. You've kept me from dying. Sheol is used as we saw. Uh, four or five different ways. Sometimes it simply means the grave. Sometimes it means death. Sometimes it means the place where the uh, departed souls of the dead go. It has these different nuances, and so you have to look at the context. But he's praising God because he doesn't want his enemies to rejoice over him. That would have been a good prayer during this election cycle. Don't let our foes rejoice over us. And then in verse 2, he said, he rehearses what he did. He said, I cried out. This is the idea of a ringing cry. It is not the idea. It's not metaphorical. He, he literally is the idea of screaming out. I screamed out to you and you healed me. Now, we know that David didn't get ill from the plague, and this is, but this is a metaphorical use here that you delivered me from the discipline that was there. I, because the plague was all around, David's life was threatened. He could, have, um, he could have come down with the plague. He could have died. And he, was, he prays to God here a very logical prayer. We'll get into that probably more next time. And we see how he crafts his prayer to present a case for God to intercede in a specific way in his life and in the life of the nation. And I want to go through that a little bit more next time. We've talked about that in the past, that this is something you see in a lot of prayers, is it's not just this simple, Lord, do this for me. It is, Lord, I would like for you to intercede in this particular situation in my life, and these are the biblical reasons and a biblical rationale for why you should should intervene. And so that's what David does. It's not simply an emotional cry, but it is a thought out. The content is thought out. And he says, and you healed me. So this is why he is extolling God and lifting God up, because God intervened in his life, and he did not die. In verse 3, he says, O Lord, you brought my soul up from the grave. Now, he was, it, it's a little bit hyperbolic. He wasn't actually in the grave. He's not uh, resuscitated. He is not resurrected. But it is literally, you brought my soul up from Sheol because it, God prevented him from dying. And that's the next line. You have kept me alive. That's the parallelism, that I should not go down to the pit. This is the other word that's used in uh, parallelism with Sheol. So, so the first line is mirrored in the second line in, in standard uh, s uh, synonymous parallelism. And then, of course, the verse we spent time on, sing praise to Yahweh, you saints of his. And so there's the command that when God intervenes in our lives, 
we should praise God and we should praise God publicly. And this, of course, was different in the Old Testament because they would bring an offering to the, uh, to the temple or to the tabernacle, and there they would offer this, and, and, it would, and then they would give a statement as to why they were thankful to God. Not just, I, and it wasn't generic. Now, a lot of the things that we read, as I pointed out in the Psalms, are in a, written in a more of a summary fashion, so that they can re- relate to other people in other situations. And if we read here something like, um, let me back it up, um, uh, you, you brought up my soul from being destroyed by the plague. Well, you know, you're not going to, you and I aren't going to pray that and think, oh, well, that, I, I understand what that means. Now, this year we might, but uh, in normal situations, we wouldn't necessarily transfer that. It's too specific. So you have these, these more generalized uh, statements. And as a result of the fact that God intervened, we are to sing praise to the Lord. And then we have the word, uh, you saints of his. And that's the word on the left, chassid, which is the word we hear of a certain uh, ultra-Orthodox group of Jews that are referred to as the Hasidic or the Hasidim. Now, what's interesting is that word Hasid comes from the root Chesed, which is the uh, word that we've talked about a lot that refers to God's faithful, loyal love. God is faithful to his covenant. And that's the root meaning. And so you'll read about um, you know, God's loyal love, God's faithfulness, and sometimes it's translated some other ways. But that's really the idea here. So it's not saints, which really has the idea of sanctified ones, and that would be a different word group, word group based on the word kadash. But this is the chassid, the faithful ones. And I think I was th- thinking about this uh, off and on today, that in many places in the Psalms, David talks about the righteous ones. And I've pointed out that the righteous ones are those who are justified by faith. And they are righteous, just like their lives may not be uh, uh, exemplary. They may be like Lot living in Sodom. But remember, Peter calls him righteous Lot. And he is righteous just like Abram was righteous in that he had trusted in God's promise and been declared righteous. And so that's one word. So that could refer to those who are following in obedience to the Lord or those that are like Lot and they actually aren't being too obedient, but they are, they are, they are righteous. We know a lot of believers like that. They're righteous, but they're not obedient. This word is different in that it emphasizes that faithfulness to the law. Just as God is faithful to the law, and we talk about his chesed, his faithful, loyal love, he's faithful to the law. These are believers who are faithful to the law. They are obedient. They are active in their, uh, in their worship at the tabernacle, and they are faithful to the Lord. So, it would be better to translate that saying, praise to the Lord, you faithful ones of his, and give thanks, that is, thankful praise at the remembrance of his holy name. And I pointed out that that phrase, his holy name, indicates his essence. So when we give thanks to God, it's not, you know, I want to thank God for this. But we ought to think about what we're saying and why we're saying it a little more. And and too often, we're, when we are when you're in certain situations where people may be um, talking about prayer requests or giving thanks, normally at this time of year we would have a church uh, Thanksgiving Christmas dinner, and often we give people opportunities to uh, say something about what they're thankful for, and we pray for, pray for different things. So this is. This is to challenge us to be a little more thoughtful. Now, this year we're not going to do it because of the COVID thing, but um, we, we will get back to it next year. Then after he finishes this, we get into the next verse, which is a good promise. If any of us, many of us, have found ourselves in really tough circumstances. Maybe it's unemployed. Maybe it's you just can't figure out how you're going to pay your bills this month. 
Uh, maybe it has to do with some relationship crisis. It could be marital relationship or relationship with your parents or relationship with your kids. There are all kinds of circumstances, and we know that this might be some sort of divine discipline as we go through this difficult time. And a promise that has great comfort, no matter what the cause, but when we think that it is from God, for his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And I think they've done an outstanding job translating this. It, it has great rhythm and meter, and it makes it very clear what the original text says. But the original text is not quite so flowing. It's, it's a lot more terse. It leaves words out. But it makes the point because it's more of a staccato fashion because of the, it just uses a brevity of language and therefore it makes the point in a little more of a bold manner. And I have um, translated it in this next slide in a way that, that reflects just the original language and making it a little more readable in English. A moment in his anger a lifetime in his favor. For a night, weeping makes its home, but in the morning, a shout of joy. And this is just such a great verse to remember, a verse to memorize, that, that God, in, in, his, in his divine discipline, and, and that's what we have here. We have this... Uh, it's typical t typical poetry in Hebrew. You have a lot of figures of speech. And so these are figures of speech in a couple of different ways, as I've, as I pointed out in the past, that when we talk about God's anger, it's not like human anger. It's not some emotion that he just isn't getting his way, and so he reaches out and swats us. It is has to do with the execution of his justice. And um, as I pointed out before, the root word in the Hebrew for anger has to do with the Hebrew word af, which means the nose. And it's, it literally says his nose burned. But see, he doesn't literally have a nose, so that's an anthropomorphism using a human form to express something about God. We have passages that talk about the eyes of God go to and fro throughout the world the hand of God or the arm of God, these are terms that relate to God's omnipotence, his power, the execution of his authority. Um, we have a variety of these anthropomorphisms, but this one is, is a double. It's an anthropomorphism and an anthropopathism. Now, an anthropopathism, as we've studied, it, the anthropo refers to man, and the pathos, the word pathos relates to emotion. So it's attributing to God emotions, which he doesn't actually possess, just as the eyes of God is attributing to God, to God a human form, which he doesn't actually possess, in order to communicate something. And it, it's not only this uh, anthropomorphic anthropopathism, but it it's also used in a way where it's talking about not, it's not really focusing on his justice or his righteousness. It's talking about the results of his justice and righteousness. And that's a totally different figure of speech called a metonymy where we talk about something and we may even use it to, tonight. We may say, well, there's joy in the White House today. And we're not talking about the physical building, we're talking about the inhabitants who are having joys. But there are so, because he's the president, he lives in the White House, we'll refer to him with this phrase, this figure of speech called the metonymy. And we have so many uses like that in English as well. And so this isn't that it is talking about that God's justice is fleeting, but that the results of it don't last long. Okay, it, it, but compared to his grace 
and compared to his his favor in our lives. So the first phrase there is anger relates to uh, the suffering that comes because God has dealt with us in his justice. And favor does the same thing. It refers to the, uh, the, the, his grace. It refers to the healing that comes in our lives because of his grace toward us. And then the third word, weeping may endure for a night, and that also is related to a metonymy, but that is the, the, uh, the first two are metonymies of cause. His anger causes us to suffer. His favor causes us to be healed. But here, uh, the result is weeping. And we are sad, we're depressed, we're discouraged, and so we lie in our beds and we're, we may weep because we just feel so helpless. But the next morning or after a short time, we realize God's grace in our lives again, and the result is joy. So that's how these, these, these figures of speech uh, relate to one another. And as I pointed out last time, there's a couple of places where it talks about God's discipline on Israel, that they will be out of the land uh, for a moment. So moments, not like five seconds. So don't think about that. God has a slightly different timetable, uh, but it's a short time compared to eternity. Compared to the fact that that even if God disciplines us in life, His grace endures not just for uh, for life, but for our lives are eternal as believers for etern- eternity. We are the recipients of His grace. And so it, it reminds us that even though we are going through difficult times, they're temporary. That God's care, his love for us, his protection of us, that's going to provide for us. And, and we don't know what's going to happen in this country in the coming years. Uh, we w- never would have guessed 10 or 15 years ago where we are today with legalized sodomy, with legalized homosexual marriages, with all of these other things that are going on. But um, we don't know what's going to happen in another 15 years. And we see the handwriting on the wall, though. We see that there are groups that are just so hostile and angry with Christianity because as these sinful acts have become legalized, they've uh, been more open in their anger and their hostility towards God and towards Christians. And I never would have thought this maybe 20 years ago, or 30 years ago, but I think that there may come a time in this country, it's possible, depending, much of it depending on what happens tonight, it's possible that there could be uh, a real persecution of Christians, that, that we will see believers who are uh, going to be thrown in jail for their beliefs, thrown in prison. And in some states, you would think that that's happening already because they're so dominated by by uh, politicians who have uh, given themselves over to such uh, perverse views of the Constitution and perverse views of the law. So we, we need to make sure that our mental attitude is straight and our mental attitude is solid. And the only way to do that is to really get into God's, God's Word and trust in Him because we may go through some real difficulty in this nation. The verse, next verse really starts a new section that goes down through verse 10. And in this section, it, it's going to deal with a couple of different, different themes. And part of what we see here is, is continuing to develop uh, why he is praising God. And verse 6 t- starts off, and this is really a confession, but this isn't a confessional psalm. But this is a confession. Even in a praise psalm, you'll have a reiteration of the confession of sin. And that is what this says. Psalm 30, verse 6 says, Now in my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. Now you have to understand a little bit more and think about it a little bit to realize what exactly is going on in this particular verse. And the, that first line, prosperity here, is a Hebrew word that has the idea of being at ease. 
And if you just translate, and some translations do this, I was at ease. And I was thinking, well, I was at ease when I was on vacation. There's nothing sinful about that. I was relaxed. I didn't have anything going on. But that's not this sense of this word. It has that idea of being prosperous, or it has the idea, I think the best translation is self-sufficiency, I, or even full of myself. In my prosperity, in my self-sufficiency, I said, and the clue is what is said here. He says, I shall never be moved. And it's an interesting statement because he uses an, an unusual negative with this, which means never, it means not, it negates uh, the next uh, verb. And he says, I will never, and the word means to totter or shake, I will never slip, I will never, and it's used as a figure of speech to indicate insecurity or general disorder or instability. What he is saying is he's looking around and he sees that he's conquered all of his enemies and everything is good, the country is stable, and he's thinking, look what I did. He's not looking at what God did, he's looking at what he did and taking credit for it. Look at what I did. I was finally at rest and I defeated all my enemies and everything is great. It's a, it's a statement of raw arrogance and self-indulgence. It's interesting, when I was studying this word, I ran across a couple of ways in which it is used that I, I couldn't resist taking a little uh, detour on this. For those of you who need to have your faith in God bolstered in relation to so-called climate change or global warming, Psalm 93.1 and Psalm 96.10 both use this word. And it, um, Psalm 93.1 says, The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed. He has girded himself with strength. Surely the world is established so that it cannot be shaken, or, and it's this word moat. And so I have translated it, it can't be shaken or made unstable or insecure. God controls the environment. God controls the climate. We're not going to start destroy the climate or wipe out the human race because we use too many hydrofluorocarbons. It just isn't going to happen. God is in control. Now, that doesn't mean we need to be irresponsible in the way we handle uh, chemicals and chemical waste and industrial waste and things of that nature, but God is in control. And we're reminded also in Colossians 1, 16 and 17, which is attributing to Christ as the agent of creation, that all things that are created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and by him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist." That means Christ sustains everything. And, and no human being can destroy the environment. No human being can, can wreck the environment on planet Earth because God has a plan and a purpose that he's working out, and it's going to be destroyed by him. But that's not until the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ. So th- that, that's what this word means. It means that things are stable and... And so David is saying, I've brought all this peace and prosperity myself. And it is for that that God brings this particular uh, punishment. It is the uh, prosperity test. And the prosperity test is one of the most difficult tests that anybody ever faces in their life. Before I get to the next verse, just look at how some different translations handle this. The uh, NET translates it, in my self-confidence, my self-assurance. I said, I will never be upended. And this is just the the arrogance skills. He is totally self-absorbed, and that leads to self-indulgence, and that leads to self-justification, and that leads to self-deception, and that leads to self-deification, and that whole cycle just goes around and around. Um, the 
Holman Christian Study Bible translates it, when I was secure, I will never be shaken. And I've translated it and expanded it and said, because there's an interesting thing at the beginning in the Hebrew, so it's an, uh, an emphasis. And I, I said in my arrogant self-sufficiency, I shall never be insecure. That gets at the heart of his, his arrogance. Now, the prosperity test is one of many different kinds of tests. Basically, there are two kinds, broad categories. There's prosperity testing, and there is adversity testing. And adversity testing is easy for most people to pass because when things really get bad and we have no money in the bank account and the bills are overdue by two or three months and the bank is threatening foreclosure, uh, we get on our knees to God. And so when we are in um, an adversity testing, it drives us to turn to God. But when things go well and we're successful and we're making a lot of money and we're getting all and we have extra money and we can buy the things that we always wanted that we thought somehow would fill up our lives and give us uh, joy and meaning and happiness, then, then we get our eyes off of God and we turn to these things, and they become distractions. Now, that doesn't mean those things are, there's anything wrong with those things in and of themselves, but with some things they, they, they are, but other things are not. It, it is that they distract us from our mission that God has given us in terms of spiritual growth and our ministry to others and our service to the Lord, and we get to the point where we just indulge all of these various desires. Now, testing is summarized here in James 1, 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, and that could be adversity or prosperity, various, many different kinds, because you know that the testing of what you believe, that gets across the idea, I think, of the original a lot better. That is the biblical teaching that you've learned. Just like when you're in school, you go, you give an assignment, you go home, you read the assignment, you come back the next day, you get a pop quiz. Well, God does that in our life. He, we learn certain things as we begin to grow and read the Bible, and then God gives us a little pop quiz to see if we're going to be able to apply what we learned. And uh, so we're tested on what we believe. And when we apply the word, then that produces endurance. And, and we stay with it, and we begin to apply the word and apply the word, and that's the process of spiritual growth, which is what is summarized in verse 4. But let endurance have its maturing work is a better way than just have its perfect work because the word there has to do with uh, reaching or arriving at your goal or maturation that you may be mature, it's the same word repeated again, that you may be mature and have spiritual integrity. And that word that is translated, there's often translated that you may be um, uh, perfect and, and whole. And if you look the word up, it, one of the meanings is integrity, spiritual integrity. That's what wholeness means. If you look up integrity, that's one of the meanings for it is wholeness. And so, but that doesn't communicate real well. So I think it, it gets across to people that if you're going to have real uh, spiritual maturity and integrity, you go through this training process that God brings, uh, that God brings into our lives. And so, as we go past that, then then we have to learn these things. Um, the trend of our sin nature is always towards self-sufficiency. So the sad thing is, is that when things are really going good, we tend to not have enough time to read our Bible, not have enough time to pray, not have enough time to go to Bible class, not have enough time to study his word because we're too busy enjoying life. And there's nothing wrong with enjoying life, but there's a lot wrong with being distracted from our primary mission, which is, which is serving God. So we forget God and we think that all that we had came from us and we did it. And we shift from being grateful to God for what he has provided for us to being ingrateful, ingrati to having ingratitude, where we are no longer grateful and we become ingrates. And that happens. If anything, 
one word could characterize much of our current culture, it's that they're, it's filled with ingrates. You have people who have forgotten where freedom derives. They have forgotten how glorious it is to have the, the liberties recognized that we have and how, how prosperous we are. We have people who've never traveled to other parts of the world where things are, are much, much worse and so they've forgotten how, how wonderful it is. And even the poorest person in America living on the street has so much more than the poorest person in India or in China or in, in Africa. And yet we're, we're not grateful for what, we're ha- what we have. We're bitter because we don't have more. And so we think that somebody owes it to us. And so we become uh, entitled and when we're entitled, we don't say thank you. Somebody gives us something, we don't send a thank you note. We we don't uh, acknowledge it. We well, of course, they should have given that to us. We expect it. We're we're not walking in humility and thankful for those kinds of things. And so, ingratitude goes along with a culture that is totally self-absorbed and thinking that everything that they have comes from their own work and their own effort. Uh, prosperity creates an environment which uh, seduces us into this fantasy world that that we did it all and God had nothing to do with it. And the result of that in situations of carnality, like all situations of carnality, is that we're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. The more that we do that, the more we're living in a manner that's divorced from reality, where we're making up the way life should work on our own, and just look around at a lot of these people that are that are involved in these riots. Uh, so many of them have been mired in the muck of carnality for so long that they they have no idea what truth is. They they're just somebody gave them money, paid them to go riot, and they're going to destroy property because they're just mad at everybody because they don't have it and they can't relate it to the fact that they made a lot of bad decisions in their life and and that's why the, why they are where they are. A failure in this area always means a distraction from biblical truth in the soul. It's a shift from walking in light to walking in darkness. And when you're walking in pitch black darkness, you have no idea what's going on around you because you can't uh, see anything. And the result is just a total disaster and that God is put in the corner out of the way in our lives and totally forgotten. And a person's values that they once held are reversed and ignored, and the result is is they're not like the person they were. Success and money and pleasure and food and alcohol and uh, drugs and sexual pleasure and perversity take over their lives because now they can afford them. They have all this money so they can afford to do all of this stuff. And when believers get so focused on entertainment and the pleasures of life and fulfilling the lust of the flesh, the soul uh, becomes warped and distorted and biblical truth flees. Humility is flushed out of our thinking. Self-gratification takes over and prosperity provides the framework to just indulge all the trends of our sin nature. And when an individual shifts from humility to arrogance, he becomes so divorced from reality that his thoughts become blurred. Reason flees. It goes out the window and emotion gets into the driver's seat. And when this happens on a national scale, then this leads to an internal fragmentation of the nation, which is what we're seeing. And no nation has ever survived this and no nation has ever passed the prosperity test and the root of this self the root of this arrogance has produced the poisonous fruit of self delusion people are redefining reality you get this this polarization between the left and the right where the left says or the, somebody on the right says, don't you know that watching these these speeches by Biden that it looks like he's he's got dementia? And and the other person says, not at all. Where did you get that? Who made, you know, you're just making that up. I never heard anybody say that Biden did anything that looked like he had dementia. And, and it's like they're living in two 
worlds apart that are, um, you know, totally polarized. And the result is that they've been redefining reality. They've redefined individual responsibility. It's not the individual's problems. We're not here because people made individually bad decisions. We're here because they're part of a group. And no longer is it about the individual. It's all about what group you're in, what race, what ethnicity, what uh, gender. And you have to walk in lockstep because that's what the critical race theory says. And they've redefined um, the roles of the sexes. They've redefined the genders. They've redefined marriage. They're redefining uh, families. They're redefining law. They're redefining what a nation is. You don't need to have borders anymore. And they are just drinking deeply of the poisonous cup of the Tower of Babel. They have imbibed of internationalism, which is always destructive. So prosperity testing can come on an individual, it can come on a group, it can come on a family, it can come on a, a corporation, it can come on a nation, and when, they, when failure comes, it can be, be absolutely devastating. And it leads to the destruction of any group that fails that test. And that's what happened with David. God made Israel so prosperous that the people failed the prosperity test. And David, like the people, also failed the prosperity test. And that is what we see in verse 7. And the only solution is to identify it, confess sin, and humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. In Psalm 30, verse 7, David says, Lord, by your favor... You have made my mountain stand strong. Now, the word mountain there stands for the kingdom, and it represents how God built the kingdom and gave it stability and gave it strength, and it was on the basis of God's grace. And then, see, this is why you think this is a situation that fits the Second Samuel 24 uh, situation. David says, you hid your face, and I was troubled. Now, the mountain is a metaphor for the kingdom, but the term hiding your face means that you, get, I, you, you no longer favored me. You withheld your favor. You rejected me, the NET says. I think that's a little strong, but it's the idea that, that you no longer favored me. I was in your disfavor. The opposite of this is God saying, uh, the psalm is saying, uh, your face shone upon me. That that gives the idea of God's abundant grace on an individual. And hiding his face means that he's withholding his blessings and withholding holding his favor. And so then David in verse 8 gives us the solution whenever we find ourselves in this kind of a situation. He says, I cried out to you, O Lord, and to the Lord I made supplication. The solution is to turn to God, to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, to confess sin, which is what David did. At the end of the chapter, he goes to the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite, and he uh, builds an altar and makes a sacrifice. And we're not told there about the confession, but that's what we learn here. He confesses his sin, and God restores him and stops the plague. This sets up the next few verses which are going to talk about this supplication. Now, I want to look at this in a little more detail in terms of his supplication, look at some other places where he will be. T he uses a logical argument to build a case for why God needs to intervene in his life. And these are the kind of things that give strength to our prayers. They're not just saying, oh, God, I want you to do this. It's saying, okay, Lord, I'd like for you to do this, and these are biblical reasons why. And it would be good for you to intervene in this situation because these are the promises that you made, and this is how I'm applying those promises to my life. So we'll come back, and we will look at those things next week on Tuesday night. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be here tonight, to be refreshed by your word, to know that even though we as a nation are failing the prosperity test, there's still hope. There's still a possibility that uh, people can be called back to you, that if you shine your face upon us, then 
then there can be a restoration. But Father, if not, then we know that we as believers are to shine as lights in the midst of this wicked and perverse generation. Father, we pray that we might be humble enough to accept whatever happens tonight and won't shake our foundations because we know you're in control, you're uh, working out your, your sovereign plan. Father, we may pray that we can be a testimony and remember that our primary responsibility here isn't to a political position or a political party, but it is to the gospel and to being a faithful witness to your grace and your glory and all that you have given in your word and that we have people that are hostile to us, yet we are to uh, return love and mercy to those who hate us. We are to treat our enemies in grace. We know they don't deserve it, but they need ultimately to learn about the gospel, and that needs to be our mental attitude and our priority. And Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.